Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. And I asked him what his experience was in construction. And he said, I had no experience in construction. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I also don't have any experience in construction. Therefore, I also can build buildings. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. I want to remind everybody that you can listen to these episodes and get continuing education credits. There's a set of instructions at the end of the episode for how you can obtain those credits. Uh, For today's episode, uh, the credits will be good for one life insurance credit in British Columbia, one life insurance credit in Alberta, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, a life insurance credit in each, an IAS credit, FP Canada will give a financial planning credit, and we'll have a professional development credit from IROC, and MFDA will have an economics, accounting, and finance credit. Okay. The object for today's podcast is right here behind me. This is a British Army sort of winter jacket. My wife bought it for me. She bought one for each of us at a British Army. Um, I can't remember what they call them in the British Army. I should know, sorry, the uh, post exchange or Canex, the place where you buy like personal materials. Um, and it's a really good, it's chilly out this morning, really good sort of uh, winter slash uh, spring and fall jacket for sort of uh, casual use. And we've always called it a British Army poof, but um, when I Googled that term, it didn't show up. So I don't know if that's a slang that's used by some units and not others or some such. But anyways, the object for today is a jacket Um, and my favorite jacket when I'm out here at our lake lot. Okay. Um, I know that some folks are going to have... some concerns about some of the content here. And that's good. I think it's good to hear different opinions. I had really sought out somebody on the real estate side. And I think you'll notice this is our second real estate episode recently. Um, I'm looking to get some exposure to that real estate area. For me personally, it's good. I have not ever been sort of comfortable with real estate investing. And, you know, I talked to John Howie about the, the realtor world um, in a recent episode. And now I've got um, Robert on to talk about real estate investing. I, I really like this. I thought 
for me anyways, this was an opportunity to learn a lot. I have followed Robert for a long time. Um, and yeah, just nice to, I think, get some different perspectives here. Again, you don't have to be a big fan of real estate investing. Um, I know Robert will be more aggressive than some of the listeners out there are going to appreciate, um, but I think that's good. And certainly there are clients out there who are going to appreciate that approach. So I have to be realistic about what people are looking for and how we can build wealth and comfort with leverage and so forth. So um, let's roll into the interview. And I'm going to correct something I said in the interview at the end of the episode. So if you heard me say something wrong in here, you'll hear my correction at the end. Thanks. I'm here today with Robert Klein. Robert is a, I'm going to say a mortgage broker, Robert, but that's not quite right, is it? You do a lot more than that. Correct. Yeah. But I think technically your licensing is mortgage broker and I know you carry a life license as well. Yeah. And then in 2020, got my my, uh, um, real estate license to do commercial real estate. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's, uh, I don't run into very many folks who carry, I don't know if I know anybody who carries all three of those. That's an interesting combo. So I actually just heard of one other that does. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's taken Um, like, it's taken two decades to get to that point. Right. It wasn't like, yeah, it's, it sort of was built on top of each other over time. Yeah. I know quite a few folks who carry mortgage and life together. That's a fairly common combo, right? It's the, the combo of the three that I don't see all that often. So yeah, it's nicely done. Um, so can you talk about your who you are, what you do, what kind of business you operate a little bit for us, Rob? Sure. I've been, I got my insurance license when I was 20 years old. Um, obviously not exactly the most genius time to get it when you're 20, because no one's going to trust you with uh, anything to do with financials. Then fast forward to 2009, I became a mortgage broker. Immediately, I dealt with real estate investors. Then probably from there, it, it expanded to business owners. So basically, my core clientele was real estate investors and business owners. Then in 2016, ended up um, getting myself exposed to commercial mortgages. So I became a, I got I became a commercial mortgage broker. But I would say it took me two years to actually figure out uh, enough about commercial mortgages to say I was even a commercial mortgage broker. And then I moved my family out to uh, Vancouver Island. I saw what was going on in development. Um, thought I can jump into that game, uh, bought eight, eight lots, uh, assembled basically a, a two lot assembly and a five lot assembly. And right now we're just finishing off a 40,000 square foot rental build. And then we're on third phase on 120,000 square foot uh, rental build. So pretty much heavily involved on the you know real estate investor business side of everything. Okay. Yeah. So on those development projects, are you the principal investor on those? Are you leading an investment group or is that uh, like- So for the you- first one, so uh, I'll tell you how I got into it. Uh, it's, it's a yeah. crazy story. Um, um, so I came out to Victoria and I wanted to basically invest into real estate, but I wanted something that was scalable. So I just said, and there's only so much money that I had. So I wanted something that people might, that people would want to put money into. So it took me about eight months um, to figure it out. So I went to a real estate meeting and I met a guy who built three buildings, small buildings, well, not small buildings, but three um, multi-unit residential buildings. And I talked to him and I said, I was like basically so impressed with how he was able to do that. I, and, and you're able to keep it too, which is just 
exactly what I would want. And I asked him what his experience was in construction. And he said, I had no experience in construction. And then back in my mind, I was like, oh, I also don't have any experience in construction. Therefore, I also can build buildings. That was my my logic conclusion. And I ended up uh, uh, really just calling a friend of mine that had 30 years experience in in construction and development. And I said, you got to come out here because what he was attempting to do out out in Surrey was just extraordinarily expensive and extraordinarily difficult compared to what what I was seeing out uh, occurring in Victoria. So he came over and then um, we pretty much executed right away. Okay. And so that's everything like you acquired the land. Yeah. So I'm a principal and then we, yeah. we raised for our first project, 3 million. The first build is a 40,000 square foot build, basically 32,000 to 1,050 two bedroom, two bedroom units. And we're about, I'd say about five months away from completion. Okay. That's cool. Congratulations on that. That's a big, uh, big project undertake. So yeah, that's uh, um. Now, can we flip back then to the commercial real estate broker side, which is sure. that's sort of that's how I've been following you for a while now. Of course, I've known you since those life licensing days, right? Yeah. But, uh, so, do you have an ideal client on that commercial mortgage broker side? Depends on the area. So, if my, a lot of my clientele is going to be Vancouver and Victoria, so probably like if you're trying to buy commercial. The challenge is like if you're buying it as a rental, like the cap rates are so low here that the financing available to it is like next to nothing. So if you're buying an investment property, you got to put 50 to 60% down, like in Vancouver, even more. Um, so, so as an investment that's scalable as an investor point of view, it's really not. Where people buy these type of properties or buy commercial is actually with their operating companies. So banks will actually use the cash flow from their operating company to support that negative cash flowing perspective of, of the, uh, the property itself. So that can be used for investment, but also generally it's more used with like owner occupied. So if you have a business, instead of paying whatever, five grand a month on a lease, you, you know, you can just go buy the, buy the actual unit itself. And there's actually possible to even, you know, for owner occupied, it's possible to get like 0% down on that type of stuff, but it all comes from the cash flow from the operating company. So that's what Vancouver space that is where I'd say the main opportunity is. But if you want to become an investor and scale up, you know, you're going to Alberta, you're going to the prairies, you're going to where you can get, you know, five, six cap properties against 4% CMHC financing. Yeah. And what I see here on the residential side, I just had a conversation about this, I think yesterday, you know, somebody who's buying up residential properties in Northern Ontario, like, you know, yeah, not even exactly. like Timmins, like the outskirts of Timmins kind of thing. And, uh, and their cap rates there are good. It, you know, so, so they're going from the bank point of view, right? So most investors, yeah. they go from their point of view, which is, uh, oh, I think this is good. I want to do it. And they eventually get shut down if, yeah. under that model. But the way smarter way of looking at it is like, what, is, what do the banks want to do and how do they look at it? And based on that, let's go to the specific areas that fit that bank model. Meet the and bank where they are. Exactly. And that's what allows you to do scale if you ever wanted to do, do scale as an investor. Okay. So you used a term there that you know I'm going to ask about. So what's cap rate, Rob? So, so cap rate is, 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 a, is a term using commercial. Um, cap rate equals net operating income divided by the property price or the, the purchase price of the property. So what is net operating income? It's going to be the income of the property minus the expense. So let's say, for example, a million dollar property, let's say the income is $150,000 and the expense is $100,000. 
This is excluding mortgages. So now you have a net income of say $50,000. And then you would divide it by the purchase price of a million. Your cap rate now is 5%. And that excludes the mortgage principal or the entire mortgage payment? It excludes the mortgage component. It's purely from income minus expense minus mortgage because the mortgage side is, is a fully variable dependent on um, you know, however they're buying it. So when an investor looks at that, they're looking at, um, yeah, they're basically looking at what, what cap rate range those properties are at and it immediately tells you what financing is, is going to be available for it. So if you have a 5% uh, cap rate, as in your example, you if you want to be cash flow positive, you'd better be getting a cheaper than 5%. Well, your mortgage has to be, you know. Yeah, it, it, you have to factor in the amortization, of the, amortization yeah. of the mortgage, the rate and how much down you're putting. And yeah, yeah it, becomes, it becomes that calculator. And by, in, t- in today's environment, all the rates going up has become like even much more, much more difficult. Like where you actually invest becomes like quite dramatic. So and, yeah, go for it. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah. So like, like, you know, a three cap versus a five cap is probably a 30 to 40% difference in financing, right. like in terms of down payment requirement. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you rewind back to like 2015, 16, I'm, when rates were low and there was kind of no prospect of rates going up meaningfully, I'm assuming like cap rates would have been lower. And I'm also assuming that some of the calculus in this was that I'm assuming like, and this would be true, right? If I bought a property in 2015 and I'm calculating my cap rate then, but you know, today the property is worth twice as much just for the sake of argument. And, and, and that's because the rents, the rents all went up, right? So the income right. goes up and that, that calculation occurs. So if you can double your, double your, um, double your rent, it, it actually would, would actually increase more than just a doubling of the value of the property because your, yeah. your expenses are not, even if your expenses double up, um, the, the, that like, it's not, it's not proportional. So it's That's almost right. like a, it's almost like, it's almost like a two and a half gain on the properties. Yeah. What people bought in 2015 has probably gone up, you know, 150% more and, and it's still that, going off the same cap. Yeah. And if you're going to sell that property, property today, you're sort of selling it based on the prospective rents that the buyer can generate. Is that a fair comment? Um, yes, yes, that's yes. But the, the the issue then becomes if you have like an old tenant that's been there since 2009, paying 600 bucks a month, and the current rents are 2,000. For financing perspectives, yeah. the bank on commercial is only going to use the 600 bucks a month, right? So that gets restrictive on financing. So you have to be careful when you look at those leases, like, you know, where those rents are. So generally, like, and for commercial, they're going to be using what the rents actually are for the the financing calculation. The realtor is going to position it saying, hey, these things are probably worth this amount based on what the market rent should be. So then another comparison they can look at is, you know, what's the price per square foot per unit in these these buildings, right? So uh, if a building is actually selling for, you know, 600 bucks a foot, that's another way of evaluating what that building actually is worth. Right. So you might it, you might not use NOI over cap because the current NOI over cap for evaluating for valuing the yeah. property. Yeah. And that's where, you know, is it easier then to finance a like a building that's attractive for tenants but has none or is it easier to finance a building that's full of tenants? So, on the residential side, it doesn't matter because they will okay. use economic rents. Um, on the other side of if a building's totally vacant, then you got a problem for financing. 
generally what happens is you actually wouldn't use normal commercial financing. You would like use private commercial financing. If that's the right okay. term, you pay more money for it. You, you have an open mortgage. You take next six to eight months to basically revitalize the whole property, get it fully up and running. Then you go back to the bank to get AAA financing. Okay. Interesting. So there's a trade-off there, a bit of a trade-off, right? That's uh... well, if, if you had the choice, you want the whole yeah. building vacant. You don't want old leases. You want to, you want to, you want to turn those properties out, uh, renovate them all, and get the absolute maximum rent on the planet you can get. Yeah, and I've been a tenant, and I get this. Like I've never been a landlord, but I've been a tenant certainly. And you know, there's, I know that long-term leases run risk for the tenant a little bit too. But you know, it's always been attractive for me to do a long enough term lease that you're going to see inflation kind of chew up some of your your costs of renting, right? So, yeah, I mean the the debate of rent versus own. It's a nice debate when you calculate it for year one, yeah. but calculate out year 10 and 20, you just destroyed a significant uh, significant financial position for yourself. And I get that. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's other reasons we were never in a position to be our own, um, be our own landlord, as it were. Uh, now, going back to your comment earlier about you know, your sort of ideal situation, is that your your commercial client acquires a space that's going to house their operating business? That's- that that in Vancouver market, that is like the target of how you buy yeah. commercial so, property. So would it be typical then? Let's say it's a, a retail or kind of a retail ish operation. Um, would you see them buy like a strip mall, a five base strip mall, and they they take the quarter unit, or do you like a business condo here or a standalone unit? What's the... So all, all of those options are available. It's, it's okay. like, like a lot of the doctor spaces, they'll go buy an individual unit. Yeah. Um, but what they don't recognize is that maybe there could have been a chance to buy like an entire, you know, small building or a strip mall at the yeah. same time. So that's more to do with just, you know, the correct advice for that person. But in general, in general, if, you know, it's, it's whatever the, whatever the bank is going to play ball, if the bank is going to allow you to do a lot more, then I would be going down that direction. So is it safe to say then, Rob, that you're a fan of leverage in this space? Like, is that, is that an assumption we should make here? Yeah, I'm, I'm not as scared of debt. You got right. to position yeah. everything pretty, uh, pretty correct. Like the way, I, way I look at people's net worth, I mean, this, this is more of a Vancouver perspective. Like there's yeah. only two equations I've seen people have net worth. It's based on how much property you own and how long you've owned it. That's it. So if and someone, in the lower mainland, that's that's hard to argue with, right? You have a lot of people who build real value in the lower mainland on on property appreciation, right? Yeah, but but also even in Alberta, right? So Alberta, if you look at if you look at yeah. the commercial space, like the, the good thing about Alberta, if you do it, I, I'm just, I'm not investing in in Alberta yet, uh, but you can actually scale like crazy in Alberta. You can't scale in Vancouver, right? They'll shut you down fast because the properties are negative cash flowing. They're just there's not much room. But so if you so if, if you say, hey, uh, I want to own a hundred million dollars in property, how do I get there as fast as possible? Um, you go to Alberta. You go to Alberta for normal purchases. But if you want to own a hundred million in in like say uh, the Lower Mainland or Vancouver, you actually the only way you can pull that off is is buying land and building and building what you keep. Like keep what you build. Yeah, which is what you said you're doing some of right now. That's sort of why I know those. Like, when you when you know all the equations of what the banks want to do, you basically do what the banks want you to do. Right. So, how do you get a feel for what the banks 
want like is this just talking to bankers do you see do you like is there something you can read to to brush up on this where, where no, does your you cannot read knowledge come from you, you cannot read nothing on this stuff this stuff doesn't exist um what was i going to say i was going to say uh like for me so a normal mortgage broker has access to basically a bunch of lenders that they're contracted with and that's it um in 2016 i was awoken to the fact that I can actually make relationships inside of banks and work with them direct. So when you actually think of a bank, you probably look at TD Bank, right? And you think of TD Bank as one bank. So if I go to TD Bank, you're, you're either approved or you're not approved. That's, that's totally wrong. TD Bank is this. There's different levels in it. There's like yeah. a branch. There's a guy that works at the branch. There's a branch manager. There's small business lending. There's mobile specialists. There's a, there's a mortgage broker channel of lenders. There is uh, commercial lending. Then there's like private and, and commercial is like five different divisions inside of yes. it. And then there's yeah. private bankers, like where the wealthy go to. So there's like six, seven different divisions. And on each inside of those divisions, you're going to have people that absolutely are not good at what they do and people that are God levels at what they do. So what I've done is I pick up the phone and I basically call around and I find, find these people in all of these divisions at all of these banks and build a massive network and basically build a, a God level team of people that can do things. So like all the financing that I did for, for the projects, for all, for, for all the, you know, the properties we bought, everything was planned 50 steps ahead with all, all, all of it. And I would say, 20% of the lending, maybe 10% of the lending was done at the normal mortgage broker channel lenders. The other 80% was done inside of the banks with very smart people. So, and I mean, that's, that's great for building out that network and building that capacity. You said you learned this in 2016. Was this like a mentor relationship or something you stumbled oh, onto? Oh, I, I took a, I took a course from a guy named Sua Trong and he teaches commercial yeah. and if, yeah, if your audience is financial advisors, I would actually take his course. I think it costs like five grand. Um, it will open you up to a whole different space of what's available. Okay. I'll throw a link in there to Sua Trung's course then. That sounds good. Yeah. Actually, that, that, that course, probably the most important course I've ever taken in my life. Interesting. Okay. Because it, it opened up the door and I was like, oh, you can do this? <laughs> and then right. I went to the moon with it. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, that's cool. That's uh it, and I like that kind of endorsement, Rob, where somebody says, like, I took this education and it helped me in this way. It's a hard thing sometimes to, to quantify the value of education, but that's a good one. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. It's, it's yeah. totally hidden because you can't actually do that. Like, I'll give you another perspective, right? Like how many people get into commercial? Well, think about it. How many people do you know that are residential mortgage brokers? You probably know a bunch. Um, yeah, I know a fair number. Yeah. Yeah, you know a fair number, right? And they talk to you, yeah. whatever. How about residential realtors? How many, how many do you know? Boatload, yeah. Yeah, like I'm probably related to 10 more. Um, how many commercial bankers do you know? I think a half dozen or so. Oh, that's pretty good. Because most people yeah. are like... Well, I work in the space, right? Like I'm, exactly, I'm a little yeah. different, right? So, so yeah, yes. the average person is going to be like, I know none. How many commercial realtors do they really know? It's like none. Uh, Four or five, yeah, same thing. In your, in yeah, your space, in your yeah. yeah. But the average right. Joe knows all the residential people. They know yeah. nothing about the commercial. Well, the commercial, and even is, then, is I fit the funnel, right? Like I have a big funnel of residential and a narrow yeah. funnel of commercial, yeah. right? So, yeah. so like the commercial, the commercial people don't go after normal people to buy commercial. Yeah, it's like it's like a total hidden space. 
of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, and yet there's tons of demand for it. I get that. And I know um, that, you know, folks in the commercial space tend to have like recurring clients. You deal with the same folks sort of over and over again, right? Because you, you see a lot of what you talked about before, leverage to to go to the next one, to go to the next one, to go to the next one, right? Yeah, that's pretty much how it's done. It's just, it's, yeah. it's a different level of sophistication that's involved in it. And taking someone from scratch up that up that model is, it's yeah, it generally yeah. never gets done for most people. Now, um, can we, so you've done a good job here of breaking down already some of the math that goes into qualifying for mortgages, but I just want to hammer out a few points here so that we can sure. make sure we understand. So, um, so cash flow, uh, really, I think what you're saying here is that at least if it's going to be like owner-occupied, can I use owner-occupied? Is that a good yeah. word to use here? Owner-occupied okay. is good. Yeah, owner-occupied business. So if I'm going to be owner-occupied, I'm really relying more on the cash flow that my business already generates to qualify. Is that a fair comment? Correct. Correct. Whereas if I'm going to be renting the space out, then I'm really relying on my prospect of rent to qualify? Correct. Current uh, rents if there for, are. For, for commercial, in most instances, yep. if you want to do scale. But you can still yep. buy commercial properties and have your operating company, or you can buy still rental properties and have your operating oh, company okay. supplement it. Okay. And then I even know one lender that will actually let you use your personal income to supplement that negative uh, really? negative cash flow. Okay, interesting. So that would be attractive for like your physician clients or that kind of thing, maybe, or um, or a higher earning employee, I guess a senior yeah, executive. Yeah, like if someone has yeah. a lot of money coming in and hey, I want to go buy that building, it's going to cost me a negative cash flow of say 30, 40 grand a year, or it, yeah. it might not even be negative cash flow. It could be a break even, but even at a break even, um, uh, it's from a banking point of view, the financing is going to be like, you need 50% down. Yeah. So uh, if, if it breaks even for most people, that's good enough. And if they're making whatever, three, four, 500 grand a year, they have that excess money to take care of it. They're not too concerned about it. Yeah, so there's perfect. many, there's many options available. Well, not many options, yeah. there's actually very limited <laughs> options. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like you can often match the, the circumstances to the, to the appropriate lender. Right. So but that, this, is, this is where it comes from. If you came from the banking point of view in the first place, right? That, that problem is, hey, I want to do this because I want to do it. That's where all the problems come from. If you look from the banking point of view and you saw here, here's my financial plan. Here's my financial structure. Here's how the banks look at it. Here's what the banks want to do. Based on this, what is the most targeted thing I should be buying? Yeah. If you look from that point of view, then it becomes a lot easier. Perfect. Now, down payments. So you already said it's possible in some cases to do zero down. Um, what yeah. do down payments normally look like here? So if you're buying normal commercial, you're looking at 25% down, assuming everything, like all the income and all the, the, the ratios, the debt coverage ratio, everything is correct. Okay. Generally it's 25. But in, in certain situations with operating companies, especially owner-occupied, uh, like the BDC, um, Business Development Canada Bank, like their mandate is to help business owners acquire properties for their business, um, they can, they can in certain situations go, you know, hundred percent. And they, and theoretically they can go hundred to 110 or 120 if they want you to like renovate and, and, and uh, you know, buy inventory and all that other kind of stuff. Okay. So yeah, that's interesting. Have you seen like you've actually done 110, 120 cases? I've never, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've, I've done a, a few hundreds, hundreds are harder to get. They generally want 10% down, yeah. but yeah, you can add on all these other layers of, of um, expenditures that you want to do to the building. Perfect. And, and they will find it. 
And then what about creditworthiness? You know, I'm very used to like the personal world. You have a credit score and credit history and all that kind of stuff. What happens there on the, the bank side? Or the if you're getting side? into the commercial space, like you're going to have a certain net worth. You're going to have good, com- you're going to have good credit. That's, it's never an issue um, at, on that, on that side, uh, on the residential. Obviously, like, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah. Oh no. I'll say on the residential, that's, that's where, you know, that's where you can see bad credit, but like the yeah. clientele that I sort of deal with, it's rarely a thing. Like I'm always Is it the, you're showing like three years of positive positive EBITDA or something like that. Like is that oh, oh you're talking about thing? credit? I thought you meant like the credit score. Oh well, sort of. Like I guess there, there's not really an equivalent to credit score. I mean, are you pulling credit score for the the owner operator? Yeah, is that yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh yeah. So all that's clean. Um, yeah. So yeah. there. So the, what ends up happening is the bank. If you're using your operating company for financing, they're going to be yeah. looking at the the EBITDA and using that excess cash flow to supplement that loan. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about non-incorporated practices? So if you, and I don't know so, what the rules are in BC for Prof Corps, but if you're in a business where you can't incorporate, for example, uh, uh, then then you then it becomes interesting because I know BDC will do that. Um, I would say for business practices, like you want to incorporate, it. I've never seen a situation where you wouldn't. Um, but yeah, like they will, they will use common sense for financing. But generally right. speaking, you want to be incorporated at least for the for the property ownership of it. You want to be in a, in a holding company at least. I know, like veterinarians in Ontario cannot incorporate yeah. their veterinary practices. So, yeah, that's insane. So, <laughs> yeah. so I, I've never even heard of that. That makes like zero sense to me. But uh, okay, um, we have to jump in the time machine to talk about that. But it's okay. yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So at least that has been true. I shouldn't say I can't unreservedly say that's true today. I haven't checked in a while, but that has been true in the past. So I have to confirm that for my after show notes. Um, so what about then? Um, I think you've, what about personal guarantees here, Rob? Sorry. Yeah. So like 99% of the time you, you're going to get personal guarantees. The one time that comes to mind that you don't is if you're dealing with CMHC multi-unit and I believe it's 35% equity in it, then, then there'll be a non-recourse loan. Okay. Uh, but generally, generally speaking, in Canada, uh, you're you're given personal guarantees. And just so, just for clarification, so uh, CMHC's non-recourse really means that CMHC essentially picks up the position a personal guarantee would, and then the lender has no recourse against you if you default. Yeah, it's recourse CMHC. only against the property itself. Yeah, and then but CMHC will. Yeah, but CMHC as an insurer, if it's something goes wrong with the lender, then then that lender can then can can claim against CMHC. Yeah, perfect. Um, okay, and then you've done a lot of work here already. Um, but is there anything else that people don't know about commercial mortgages or lending that maybe you wish people knew, or that you wish maybe financial advisors knew? So I'd say most people know nothing about commercial. <laughs> In right, general. That's probably fair. It, like yeah. when I took that course, I was I'm in seven years in mortgages. Like I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. Yeah. And when I took that course, from that point, it took me two years to be even comfortable to say I was even a mortgage commercial broker. So the average person just they know nothing about it. And and but at the same time, I would say uh, you want to learn about everything. Like if you're a financial advisor, like a lot of my business, I actually got a list of things here. Like I deal with the accounting all the time. I don't just say deal with your accountant or deal with your lawyer or deal with this guy to pass it off. 
all of these industries, like if you look at corporate lawyers, accountants, I got a list here, realtors, financial advisors, residential bankers, residential mortgage brokers, commercial bankers, commercial mortgage brokers, life insurance, all of these people are 100% integrated together relative to that client's financial position. They're all 100% connected, everything of it. And even though they're connected, the person that's responsible for figuring out how to make that work is actually the client itself. And the client does not do a good job at it. And then what ended up happening about a month ago, I had this idea. I just said, would clients just pay me a flat fee for me to just do this entire thing for them every single year to structure it so that they can get the max financing? Turns out now, after, after I've done a bunch, also minimize their tax structure because their corporate structures are totally wrong. Um, and what they do? So I call a bunch of clients and say, would you pay me for this? And then they said, yes. So then I blasted an email out. You got it. Uh, and yeah. Um, yeah, so I've had a, a bunch of people come to me and say, yeah, we will pay you for this service to do everything. So if I were just, if I were advice from the financial advisor world, you know, the whole industry, including me, like they always told me specialize into one thing and not, and, and only know that. Well, the stuff that I'm doing is 100% encompassing everything. And that's what allows me to do like all the properties that we've done in, in development, how I'm able to structure my, uh, my, um, my own personal tax structures where I pay, I would say close to, close to nothing in tax relatively, like yep. all the mortgages I've qualified for, I pay a $45,000 dividend to myself and a $45,000 dividend to my wife. I pay $0 in CPP. I buy the right properties with the right income amounts that basically and I use the right lender that offset everything. So like I'm attached to, I don't know how much more, I don't know, 10 or 12 million worth of mortgages. And I'm paying myself 90 grand a year out of my company. And that enough theoretically- enough to buy groceries and, and go on vacations like that. Kind of yeah. Thing. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's totally counterintuitive to what you hear in the media of what, you know, what, what banks actually saying versus, versus what actually can be done. So for, I'll give you an example. If I were to go to Royal Bank and I were to buy the properties that I bought, I would qualify for 700,000 worth of mortgages based on that structure. But I go to a special credit union and I use a very, very genius person and I know all their numbers and I know everything they want to see. I now qualify for 2.7 million. Right. Yeah. I, I get that. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And again, knowing the numbers and being able to read a financial statement and understand what those numbers actually it's, it's mean. positioning everything around what the bank wants is integrating right. again, integrating the industries, right? So an accountant, like the number one destroyer of lending is accounting structures because they don't understand how the banks work. Right. And if they, if they understood how the banks work, they wouldn't be structuring uh, certain income that you're paying yourself. Like all that stuff has to be managed correctly. If you wanted to scale up in real estate. So I think this is a good argument for sort of a comprehensive financial planning picture. Like if I, you know, go back to when I first incorporate and I can, you know, say, what are my objectives long-term? Do I want to own the real estate that I occupy? Do I want to build a real estate, you know, empire or whatever we want to call that? It's a really good argument for, you know, the same things we talk about in our financial planning classes, setting up the corporations properly right from day one to, to achieve that. But it's, it's difficult to do that if you don't have that, the integrated perspective of everything. Like it's impossible. I remember I, I, 
I remember like, um, I remember back in the mid two thousands, right. Uh, about corporate whole life. People were talking about corporate stuff to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. Give me a financial statement. I can't read that. I have no idea what's even going on and what the problems are. It literally took me to 2020 where I spent 12 years in, in, in you know, dealing with the, all the accounting stuff where a, a friend of mine, she was putting a quarter million dollars of whole of money into whole life a year for her client. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, and, and it's corporate. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, instead of me being ignorant to this, tell me why you think this is good. And then she explained it to me. And because I had the background on the, on the corporate side, I said, oh, this is, this is actually legit. This is why you want to do it. It makes total sense. But without that background, I'm, I'm, stupid, I'm shooting from the hip. And then, then from there, it took me a year and a half of me investigating it just part-time um, to figure out how to really structure those things in companies and the financing structures behind it and what actual is the best insurer. Like, for example, Manulife with their 20 to 1 term structure that crushes pretty much everything else that all the other insurance companies do on, on the whole life side. I know many advisors would, would be against what I'm saying, but like when you do the math and you, and you, you see the structure, I'm like, it becomes blatantly obvious. Right. I mean, that's a specific play to maximize for MTAR, right? Like, and that's, that, that has a purpose. It's not, it's not going to fit. Well, every the, the, pur- the purpose is the purpose is like, if there's a, for me, how I look at it, I look at the whole, whole picture is that you got an operating company, operating company makes tons of money, right? So, you're going to move the money to the holding company. And let's say you need an extra $200,000 on the personal side. You don't want to be fronting that money out of, out of your, out of your holding company, your operating company to your personal side. So if you can structure a lending on the personal side against the insurance contracting here, just to get access from an investment point of view, it's blatantly obvious to, to do it in most scenarios. And if right. you structure it where it's, you know, the, the minimum payment in a given year is not not that much versus being locked into a hundred k payment till age ninety or something, um, and then you know getting access to the to the cash value, what ninety two percent in year one versus taking you know a ten year break even point just with normal normal whole life structures. So, anyways, that's that's how I look at it from the at least the clientele that I have, where it becomes like sort of obvious to do. Right. Again, your clientele is going to be predisposed to like leverage, right? I think that's an important concept here. And they're going to be comfortable with taking things on where they know, like they recognize the cash flow implications. Is that yeah, it's, it's, a tax, it's a tax structuring plan yeah. and, and how to do it, right? A lot of people, like, for example, I'll give you, give you a good example. A lot of people go ask for a pre-approval for a mortgage, right? So let's say you want to do a one bedroom in Vancouver, $700,000 and it rents for 2,600 bucks a month or whatever it is. Um, you get approved for it. But what you don't recognize is that every other mortgage or every other loan that you want to be dealing with, again, they have to factor in that property. That property from a banking point of view at the best banks, would that give you the most offsets or the most um, leeway? That property costs you 30 to 40 grand worth of income. Right. Of support that you have to support. So how many, if you make 150 grand a year, you have to support your principal residence, which might cost 80. You got one condo costs you 40, and then you can buy maybe another one. Now you're locked out of residential financing. Right. So if you buy correctly, I don't know where I was going with this, but uh, like planning all of these things out is, is how you do how you do it. Like I had, I had another client. He has three and a half million worth of residential loans. Guess what his income is? 
So, like his on his his T one income, like what he's T one T one job job. Yeah, because yeah, you talked before about sort of you and your spouse both at forty five of dividend income. So I'm gonna say that it's uh, I don't know some. I'm gonna assume just based on the question something less than a hundred thousand dollars of uh, of T four sixty thousand dollars a year he makes. Yeah, and the yeah. reason that that works is because the property types he buys are fourplexes that have massive massive rents on them that support the whole mortgage. And then his principal residence is so low on the mortgage amount that that basically his income covers that. And then each of his properties covers itself. There's no negative, uh, there's no negative loan amounts attached to it. There's no negative income supplements. So that was very specific on how he did that. He did that over 20 years, but um yeah, if you know the math and you and you plan you plan from the banking perspective, then it actually defines what you should be buying. Now, because we're in this high or this rising rate environment, um, so how like how much of that um, for that guy, for example, how much of his borrowing is fixed and how much is variable? And it, it'd probably be half and half over the years. Yeah. And but his, his, position, like, his incomes all went up. I mean, his equity positions are insane. Like the clientele that I deal with, they're not like, no one's calling me saying I'm going broke because they already have, you know, lots of equity sitting in there. But like the people that are in, in, in tough spots, like if you have a good old fixed rate mortgage and, you know, or you're, you're getting tapped out, but you have equity and you don't want to be, you don't requalify for mortgages now because the, the qualifying went up or, or all that kind of stuff. I and if you want to be defensive, I'd probably go get like a hundred thousand dollar or one fifty private line of credit. Okay. So like eight, nine, ten percent, um, pay fees, just do whatever. But that that money is available and you pay zero interest as long as you don't use it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a backstop. It's an emergency fund or however you want to look at it. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um, and again, this private line of credit thing. I mean, I've never run into a private line of credit before. I know private mortgage lenders, but I've, and I assume it's the same thing. It's just that maybe if like a couple of them will do line of credits for you. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a private mortgage, but just a line of credit. Right. Right. And I assume you like private because you have a little bit more input into terms and conditions there. Would that be the reason? Private lends on the equity of, of the, of the, uh, of the property, but also like, you know, um, they, they, they basically will lend, they come into play when you need the money. Uh, fast, like we bought. Actually, we've actually bought a lot of our properties with private initially, and then I switched it to, to uh, um, then I switched it to triple uh, A after the fact. Got so it. that's sort of so the, the game. The key thing is getting title and then restructuring all your financials correctly after. Then you can convert it to normal triple A. Just a cost right, of right. business. And the private lenders are okay. Like they're doing open. If it's line of credit, it's open, obviously. Anyways, but if you know they're they're yeah. okay, they they want to do those short term deals, sort of in and out for them is good. Yeah. Well, yeah, with the line of credit, if you're buying it, they'll probably give you like a one-year term. Um, but it's more just if people are in, in, a, in a situation and you got good mortgage terms and you don't requalify or whatever the situation is, just getting a private 100K is probably the path of least resistance. Okay, nice. Um, so what about then? Yeah, so you said, I guess what I'm thinking about here in terms of that concern around interest rates, you know, is the person who like two years ago is the first time that they jumped into this market and now they're watching rates go up. Is that person concerned? I would assume so. Honestly, okay. I don't really, 
I don't deal with them. I don't deal with like I don't deal with really new first time home buyers. I will deal with them, but that's right. not who's referred to me. Yeah. Okay. So Got it. you're you're dealing with people that already have a fair bit of comfort with this, or have, uh, yeah, with with equity yeah. positions and so forth. Like people that are on the line, like people that are already on the line. Um, like Offsy over the last ten years has destroyed first time home buyer financing. Right. Like like for example. What in Vancouver 12 years ago, you can buy one bedroom for 300 grand. And then you could literally say, I am a tutor making 80 grand a year. Yes, I'm not lying. Sign it. Right. And yes. then you're now in at, at 2% down. Yeah. So literally, people making 40, 50 grand a year could now go buy a hundred, uh, no, $300,000 one bedroom condo and, and, and have a home, no problem, which is, which is, which, which is good. Uh, now that same one bedroom condo is like 650 or 700 qualifying is now well back then it was like five and a quarter 25 year am you you went from making 40 50 grand a year to qualify to 150 or 140 a year to qualify and now it's even higher so people that were qualifying a couple of years ago probably had there's there's they had substantial incomes already like they're not, okay. you can't fool around in the Vancouver market. Like it's, it's scary. And you know, this point was even crazier is that for the first time ever, I'm now referring, I'm telling people that in, in certain positions, like there's no point to live here, go to Alberta because you can buy something here, there. You cannot, there's no point to pay 4,000 month of rent. So paying someone else's mortgage. You know, so. Rob, though, we're seeing like, I'm seeing people in Edmonton now who are being told to go to, you know, Lacombe or whatever, like the smaller communities outside of Edmonton to qualify. Like, yeah, it's it's getting it's uh it's getting scary. Like for the first time ever, I'm I'm actually scared for people. Like there's no you can't be broke or poor. Like there's no place to go. It's not good. Um it's sketchy, right? Like I, I see the I see the posts online. I'm like, well, these people are very close to homeless, but uh and it's not good. Like a single mom, like I see that, you know, you see those uh like Vancouver rental things and they're looking for something and it's just very scary. And uh and I think the only defensive thing they can do is like worst case scenario, go to Edmonton, go to Calgary, probably, I don't know, go to Calgary, go buy a, a condo. And then just, that's a defensive place for your family to be. And it's reasonable to buy. And the problem with the condo market is now you have the risk of special assessment and you know it's a hard for the condo boards to get insured and due diligence on your um, condo reserves and all that. Like it's a, it's like a yeah. no-win situation with that. So yeah, I, but but I understand better that. Be, better than being homeless. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so and so yeah. I mean, listeners to the podcast will know that I helped. I about a year and a half ago now, I helped my daughter to buy a condo, right? For exactly this reason, Rob. Right. So yeah, it's like it's like defensive defensive planning. Um, and I think it's it's like who cares where you live, right? You, you work from the computer all day long, anyways. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's. Before you can just move to Langley, then it went to Abbotsford, then now you can't even afford Chilliwack, right? When I grew up, Chilliwack, what is that? That was the place where the Fred, St- Fred Flintstone Park was. That's yes, all Chilliwack that. was to me. Yep, and now yep. you're going to tell me I got to go move there? Like, no. That's why I'm going to Vancouver Island because you can do, do crazy stuff a few years ago here. So, yeah. But you're right. Yeah. The lower mainland has sort of extended out. And I know, like, I know technically it's a different geographic region, but when I talk to my Abbotsford folks and my Chilliwack folks, it's the same issues as people are facing in, you know, yeah, in the it's, mainland. So 
you, you gotta take, you gotta get this. Like, you know, everyone talks about, you know, being financially literate, literate. You literally need to take that, that dead seriously now. Yeah. You yeah, need to figure it out one way, one way or the other. Now, going back to sort of holding property and, you know, I, I have a bunch of folks who are exposed to this risk in say Fort McMurray or high river. Um, what do you say to clients about flood risk, about physical risk on the property? You talked earlier about that sort of network of experts. You know, how, what about the property and casualty insurer in there? Is this something you get involved I, I, in at I, all? That's, or the, is it just... that's the one background that I don't have. Yeah. So I, I can't really comment to that. I, I would say one thing though, if that's an issue, you before you remove subjects, get, get the insurance approved okay. would be my only comment. That's fair. And then, yeah. you know, there, there are... Well, I think the insurance space just depends on the level of complexity. Like our insurance guy that we have is very smart and he does, you know, complicated things. So I, the average consumer is not going to need that level of, of, of intelligence of a person, but um, they, they are out there. But yeah, I don't think I can comment on that part. That's the one part that I don't have. Yeah. I, you know, I'd love to chat with somebody who has that expertise. And I did have a PNC, like a home insurance guy on, but residential, really, we talked about residential. Oh, so I, I got the guy that you can talk to. I can give it yeah, to Yeah, well, that's good. I'd love to, because I know then you get into some, you know, some direct reinsurance and some of those types of issues. So that, that'd be interesting to hear. So yeah, he would be the, I, I know the exact guy you'd want to talk to. So right, perfect. Um, now you talked about life insurance as sort of a tax play before Rob, what about life insurance as a risk mitigation here? Is this something that you uh, get involved in at all? Like just straight up yeah, insurance? I, I, yeah. No, no. I mean, so what do you mean by risk mitigation? Like, so when I, when I'm, if I'm dealing with families, I'm always structuring their insurance contracts, uh, like yep. in their thirties structure, whatever the heck you can afford. And then I explain as you get richer and you buy more and you got more success and all that kind of stuff, you think that you might need less. What ends up happening is you buy way more because relative to your financial position, it's so cheap just to get. Right. So you'll end up finding it buy more. Then in the next stage, you start to look at estate issues, which, which come into play down, down the road. So yeah. it's really like, almost like a three, three step structure that people go through. Um, generally speaking, if people are incorporated, then we're definitely owning it in their in their holding company. Um, we are structuring the the whole life structures in their holding company also, because uh, all you're doing is buying term insurance with Manual Life and then adding a hundred thousand dollar whole life rider, which then allows you to do all the things that, uh, that that whole life allows you to do. So that that's a no brainer to do. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, and. We, you and I chatted offline a little bit before, and of course, I've been following you this way for a good long time now. So you do a fair bit of education, like your newsletter. You always have an education piece in your newsletter. You do your YouTube videos. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's worked for you and your business model? Yeah. So my newsletter is just figuring out how to stay in touch with everybody in a passive way over the last, I think, over 13 years now. So I've done one a month. Um, and it's about me personally. I actually built the software for it, believe it or not. That, yeah. But uh, that's a crazy thing. That's a lesson learned. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so yeah, keeping in touch long run with everybody is super key. When you call people up, um, they know who you are. They know your family. Like we we're talking about like you've literally seen my kids grow from zero years old to seven. And, you know, I get that comment all the time um, and they know who I am. So that's, it personalizes my, personalizes yourself to your audience. 
that's very important. And then, and then I'll send maybe once a month, I'll do some sort of education piece on, on, on the mortgage side. I haven't done one this month, but that's, that's sort of what we do. And so I have a CRM system. I run, I run Salesforce and then have, you know, tons of reports and all that kind of stuff. So I got like a 10 year database of clients. So if you're a financial advisor, you need to invest heavily into that stuff um, and find, find people that know how to program it with you. And you basically sit there and you work on it week after week after week. Um, and then, and then, and then it becomes a tool. And then once that tool is built, you'd be like, I would never do business without this ever again. I think for me, the number one thing with your newsletter has been consistency. You have the same type of thing. Like I know what I'm going to see when I open your newsletter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's all, you never like, you, you don't, uh, go long-winded in there or anything. And that's, you know, I read it and that's why I noticed your subscription model, right? That's uh, which is, I think, fascinating. Yeah. Um, so it works now, well. anything else that we should be talking about here? Is there any ground we haven't covered? And I, I know, you know, a ton more stuff, but um, yeah, no worries. yeah, but you have some notes here. Go ahead. Um, yeah. What I was going to say, Oh, I was, I was just going to say that, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a big trigger point that got me into real estate that really triggered me into it. And it was in 2016. So I'm sitting there on Facebook doing mortgages, blah, blah, blah. And then I see this guy that I know for 10 years and he does a post and he says that over the last, whatever, 15 years, I've been able to acquire or build a real estate portfolio of like $20 million of buying multi-unit residential properties all around the world or not around the world, all around Canada. And he says, you know, I know so many smart business people that you know, doctors, lawyers, dentists, businesses, whatever business. I know so many successful people, but none of them can touch what my $20 million portfolio can do. And I basically sat there and barfed because what he was saying was 100,000% true. Because think about it. He had 20 million. If, in, if the government spends more money and adds inflation to that calculation and it goes up 3%, that's a 600 grand gain. What do I have to do as a mortgage broker to do 600,000 net out? Right. Like move the world. I'm like top tier G. Thousand mortgages? Like, yeah. Yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah. When I saw that, I was like, okay, I need to make real estate my business. I need to accumulate as much as I can and keep it for as long as I can and let inflation, let the the real estate, let the markets do what, what it does. Like the good thing about, you know, Canada is we're bringing 400,000 people a year into this country every single year. And it's increasing, not enough housing. And so you got to buy properties that allow you to scale. And if you sit on it long enough, you do quite well. And now, now the market, I guess, you know, in Vancouver, it's, it's, just, it's just gone crazy. But I see like the, you know, for Alberta, people are, I think, moving there because there is no choice. Like the future generations Unless you have your parents' money, you're moving to Alberta. Unless you want to pay three, four grand a month in rent for a junker house, you're, you're going somewhere else. So yeah, yeah not, not fun. So what I'm, my point of that is um, real estate became uh, an important focus, but like in the, in the financial services world, when you hit 60, 65 years old and you're retiring, your book of business is maybe one or two times earnings, if that whatever, whatever number they give, um, what your net worth is going to be is based on how much real estate you've owned. Yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. Generally, generally from what I've seen from most people's <laughs> <Sorry>. finances. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, like, and I think, 
I mean, some of that goes back to what you talked about earlier. There's that willingness to leverage, which I think is one of the things that we always have to take into mind with real estate, right? That 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 is more to do with really getting educated on it. Like it's not just buying a random property. You have to understand the cash flow statements. You have to understand, um, you know, the expenses, your ability to operate, your ability to manage. So it's worth starting out and just figuring out on a small. But bottom line, what I, I guess what I'm saying is that real estate as an entity is far superior than most people's businesses, okay. including mine. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Including mine. Real estate kicks the crap out of me okay. <laughs> in terms of what I, what I can compete with it. Um, so, And I think any other words of advice for the financial advisors and financial planners who are watching? Uh, I'll talk about accountants. Yeah. Okay. So how to tell if your accountant is good. Okay. I'll tell you right now. So let me ask you this. How good is your accountant? So my, and I don't have an accountant now day to day. I'm an employee. I'm back to. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're under that situation. But when we were operating a business. So what I would say with our accountant, and he might even be watching this. So is that he, he didn't get too involved in our planning side. Like it just, for him, we were mostly dealing with just um, straight up sort of like corporate filings and all that. And and I, I know this is not the answer you're looking for here, but oh, no, no, I would no. say he was there for us when we had some tough financial times yeah. and that's what we needed at the time. So, yeah. you know, he was exactly who we needed to get our business to where it got to. And I would say if we'd run the business EBITDA positive for a few more years, then I would have hoped we had different conversations with him. Is that? Yeah. So, gotcha. so, so let's say, let's say, let's say, let's ignore your account because obviously that's perfect. Yes. All right. Let's, Sorry. Uh, yeah. let's talk. I talk to any other business owner. I say, yeah. How good is your accountant? And if he goes, yeah, it's good, good. Yeah. That's not a good answer. The answer you want to hear is phenomenal. I agree Just with by that. that. I do if agree. you were to ask me that question, yeah. I'd say my accountant is phenomenal, like yeah. world-class at what he does. And obviously I'm more, more experienced to understand why that happens. So what you want in it with, we, as a financial advisor, you want top to your accountant. And guess what? If you just email me or whatever, I can send you who I use. Um, so there's three levels I look at. One, you got average bad accountants. They exist all over the place. Unfortunately, they do. There's actually a lot of accountants that pray themselves around. And they're actually not like certified. They're not CJs or none of that. They just have the word accountant attached to them, which basically, like, just, <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but that's, that's what happens. So you got average bad to phenomenal. So you want the phenomenal one. Then you got the second thing you want to look at is are they slow to respond or are they extraordinarily fast? So right now I've got a client right now who has a phenomenal accountant. I've asked for documents from him. It's been over two months. That's insanely slow. My accountant is like, he responds back to me in like 10 or 15 minutes. If I met, he misses a call, text message, I'll call you back in five. That's how fast I get it. Then the third thing is extraordinarily expensive because they think they're giving you genius advice to reasonable priced. So what you want to find an accountant is phenomenal, insanely fast, and fair priced. And if you find that guy, like I refer 40 to 50 businesses a year to him. Like I'm just nonstop referring because I can figure out quite quickly if the accountant that my clients are dealing with is, is bad or good. And I just say, look, talk to this guy. You need to deal with this guy. So steal, steal my team if you want. Um, yeah, and I think that's good advice. I think it's worth going out and finding the right team to deal with. Um, I find that 
and this is true for I think clients in general. They're often kind of happy with the person that they're. I'm going to say like it is delivering satisfactory service. And I think that's just typical. I think we, we suffer from a lot of status quo bias. So it's a process, right? So you make your first business, you make 80 grand a year, whatever, right? So you don't need that much intelligence involved. So you just take whoever's going to take it and you start talking about price and you think this guy's the cheapest and he'll just do it. And you think it's nothing different. Then all of a sudden you bring in 150 or 200 on your personal side and all of a sudden you have a $45,000 tax bill and you're just like, whoa, 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 you didn't save for it. And now you're just now you're questioning taxes. Then you start to investigate: is there higher levels to this stuff? You try to try to learn it. That's sort of the progression. And then and then eventually other things like in terms of correct structuring and correct planning. Like when I look at it, I can tell you right away if it's right if it's right or wrong or it's optimized. And then from that point, hopefully, like you start trying to go higher and, and level. So. It's just because so, you start at the low level when you begin begin your business, you take anybody on, you know, take anybody as an accountant. So do you have the conversation with your clients where you say you are dealing with the wrong accountant? 100%. And like, how does that typically time. go? Who do I talk to, please? Okay. Yeah. Because when I go through everyone's financials, I'm ripping everything apart in 15 seconds. I'm showing, hey, this is wrong. This is this, is this number here. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And they have no idea how to answer it. And I'm like, here's here's probably... You probably want to talk to my guy, and then, then they they move over immediately. And then when they talk to him, talk to him, they know they know like okay, this guy's a genius. And this is someone that took me a decade to find. Yeah. And I deal with it. I deal with accountants all the time. So usually when I'm dealing with someone else's accountant, I'm generally scared. I'm just like because it's not not to the level that I'm used to, but with my accountant. That's great. Um, any final words for us, Rob? I think I'm about to have a visitor oh, here. I think, so, I, think yeah. I think I'm good. Okay. You, you can reach, reach um, me at uh, robert at robertkline.ca or just go to Google, type in Robert Klein Mortgage Broker and you'll see all my stuff. Yeah. And I'll put, a, I'll put that all in the show notes today. And yeah, great to have you. I really appreciate uh, your willingness to share and good luck with the subscription thing. I think that's an awesome business model. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Bye-bye. Hi. So you hear that that's, uh, again, more, I think, aggressive than a lot of my, let's say, financial planner um, clients. The um, incorrect statement I made in there, and I could have chosen a much easier example. Um, I said that veterinarians in Ontario are not allowed to incorporate. I checked the um, Ontario um, College of Veterinary Medicine website. And in fact, there is capacity for prof corps for veterinarians in Ontario, including hold codes for those corporations. So um, yes, veterinarians in Ontario can incorporate. I hope nobody uh, called somebody midway through the episode to tell them not to incorporate. Um, so apologies for that, uh, but there's my fact check. Um, the number for today's episode, the number for today's episode is three. Again, the number is three. Okay, we will have in two weeks' time, sorry, uh, Jan Uon from one of the ENO carriers. I'm really looking forward to this interview. This is one it took me a little bit of time to set up. I've been looking for this kind of interview. And I actually want to encourage people, if you have questions about this, I think there might be some follow-on questions from this episode. I have regular contact with Robert, and I could certainly ask him questions. Maybe even I can get him to come on for a second episode. Um, I'd love to um, take that opportunity as well. Thanks very much for joining me today, and enjoy your continued studies. Thank you.
thanks very much for joining us. You'll be able to do your quiz by creating an account and subscribing for $15 a month or $150 a year at businesscareercollege.com. Those who subscribe on an annual basis will also have access to three half-day continuing education seminars covering a variety of topics and capturing a range of different continuing education credit requirements. In order to get your credits for this episode, you'll have to do a short five-question quiz. You'll need the number that I went over just after the interview, the object that I displayed at the beginning of the interview, and you'll also have to recall a few details, nothing too challenging from the episode. Once you have completed the quiz, Within the course where you did the quiz, you'll be able to click at the top right corner. And from there, you'll be able to choose the option to view wall certificate. That's how you'll see your CE credits. Hang on to that, although the system will hang on to it as well. I would like to acknowledge the efforts of a few people in getting this episode to air. Jocelyn Lord, Brenny Wong, and Sushami Pamela-Paquette, are the amazing marketing team at We Know Training, which is Business Career College's parent company. Sush also does our video content. Joseph Tong composed the theme music and does the sound editing for every episode, as well as uploads the episodes to all audio platforms. Maria Nguyen takes care of all our CE approvals. 